You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show and my other show, Enthusiasts, plus to get the latest interviews, K-pop news, album reviews, and so much more, subscribe to the show's free newsletter at 17karatkpop.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hi everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-pop. The News of the Month Roundup is a bit early today because a lot has happened. So the big top 10 stories of the month we've already reached. 10 big K-pop stories of the month. We're just going to dive right in. No particular order of importance, no order to these categories, but I've grouped the news of the month into 10 big categories. And first of all, number one, we have to talk about that TXT GQ profile. I kid you not. Okay, maybe I'm kind of joking, but pardon me not saying this in jest. I would not be surprised at all if it turns out the author of the GQ TXT profile that has been widely panned was written by AI. I really feel like it reads like an AI wrote it. And I'm very hesitant to say that because I don't want to just be mean and I'm a writer myself. I know how much it hurts to have people critique your writing. But I feel a little less bad, I guess, about critiquing it when it turns into disrespect. And this TXT profile is downright disrespectful, the complete lack of caring who they are and getting to know the real them. I'm just saying, it was very oddly worded too. It left me very, very confused. There's some paragraphs that for some reason feel offensive, and I don't know why but it's something like meant to sound off-putting about them. It doesn't cast them in a good light. Not really. It's very strange. Like this line. He's describing that TXT ordered food that they left for the end of the interview. Quote, In exercise and endurance and mental fortitude to rival 63 hours spent shivering in a block of ice while wearing an adult diaper. Unquote. First of all, what? Second of all, why specifically 63 hours? Third of all, what? Fourth of all, what? Like, why did that pop into his head as an analogy? With an adult diaper? I just... What? He also describes their mix of genres as what, quote, Today's fourth-gen artists have unconsciously ingested and metabolized in tiny, indistinguishable fragments, like microplastics in the bloodstream, unquote. What? There's this part which I really, really don't know if he meant to sound like trollish and snarky or if he meant it as a real joke and it just flopped. Quote, Of course, none of this would be possible if the music was meh. And, well, how do you do, fellow kids? The music is indeed extremely fire. Unquote. Was he just joking about the how do you do, fellow kids meme? Or was that kind of like a diss to the fans? The music is extremely fire, he says. Sarcastically? I don't know. It's very strange. He also talks about them, truly, I feel like, in the way an AI bot would. If you just said, hey, describe TXT based on the algorithms and internet searches and keywords and whatever goes into the formula. So here's how he describes them, with some weird parentheticals throughout this really long sentence. Quote, in person, the TXT boys are all beautiful, yup, and reticent, like shy teenagers, a little disarming. With poor so small, you need an electron microscope to find them. The group consists of Subin, the tall, sexy one, Yeonjun, the other sexy one, also the consensus, best dancer among the guys. Side note, yeah, that's the grammar. I didn't change that. Also the consensus, best dancer. Taehyun, the enthusiastic one who dominates the group chat. Kai, the multiracial one who makes everyone laugh. And Bumgyu, a gentle angel from heaven. Unquote. What? It has the air of, like, a backwards compliment. Every compliment has, like, the feeling of an anti-compliment. Like, this is just a very strange way to try to describe what makes this group stand out. It's also frustrating that the piece is just not having a clear narrative. Like, I understand trying to be objective and not sounding flipping out and being starstruck over them, but his level of detachment to the group is cold. This is why I argue, actually, with K-pop writing or other relatively niche writing, writing for unique fandom cultures, subgroups, to really do it justice, it actually helps your reporting, your writing, be better if you are a fan. Because you get all of the subtleties of 
in the language of that subculture. You can ask questions that are actually interesting <laughs> to fans because you are one, not just super generic stuff. So you can make a piece that's better and more charged emotionally in a way that can still be pretty objective, just observing, hey, here's what people like about this group. Here's what I see in them. But to understand the good qualities in someone, you can still frame it objectively and still be a subjective fan of the music. This profile did not really make it sound like they hired an anti to it, or a fan, or someone in the middle. It's not really about TXT at all. So my issue is that the premise is confusing. The title was TXT or the Future of K-Pop, after they changed it because they got backlash for calling them the next BTS, which is such a tired trope at this point to call every group. So the headline says, The Future of K-Pop. Then the article proceeds to talk about the K-pop industry at large over time and the formulas used in the past for artist success. Like, no connection whatsoever. It just rehashes, like, K-pop industry 101. Like, this is the kind of article you read if you need an introduction to the world of K-pop, how it works, big picture. The bulk of the piece is not even about TXT, it's about K-pop period, with no connection to what TXT has to do with it, how are they furthering the world of K-pop. He also addresses, you know, made in a factory, manufactured, etc., negative K-pop stereotypes and assumptions, but then he goes back to basically pointing out their validity in a weird way. The whole piece is written with this weird credulousness, like, oh my gosh, have you heard of this K-pop thing? Here's how it works, like, very discovering for the first time of him. And it's like, anyone who is reading a TXT profile, I'm sure already knows all about this stuff. Like, this would have been way more valuable to readers if it was about them specifically, more so than just about how the industry has worked, how it's packaged stuff. He really makes it to kind of a weird meta-analysis of the sociology of fandom culture. And maybe I'm bitter about the description because I have a degree in sociology, that's my major. But I can't get behind this sociological take for this group. He just breaks it down. He says, you know, they turn passive viewers into active consumers. They create things for their idols like their idols do reciprocally. That reciprocal affection shown through creative work, fan art song covers, etc. And that is a pretty decent summation of fandom culture from a sociology perspective. It's just odd to have that be a focus of the article when the headline and subject imply that it's going to be about this specific group. And then he makes it sound like the cause of their appeal is that, that reciprocal affection. But that's the case for every group. So he doesn't tie together the ways that the reciprocity or other factors specifically led to TXT's growth. What did they specifically have to do with this? He also ends on a strange note, basically saying that he asked them who's the hardest worker. And he said there was a response, quote, that in Korean sounds long and meandering, but is unattributable to any one of them, unquote. So he ends with basically saying the translator said, oh, they all work hard. So he leaves the reader thinking, not a strong conclusion that's like, yes, here's my clear crystallized, here's my argument solidified in a strong conclusion sentence. This is why TXT are the future of K-pop. But instead ends it with, I asked him who's the hardest worker and they couldn't give me an answer, so they said all of them? Like, he ended with a complaint about having to use a translator for the interview. It's just very strange. I do want to acknowledge my personal bias, obviously. Like, I have skin in the game, you could say, because I am a writer and I interview K-pop stars and TXT's team have yet to say yes to one of my interview requests that comes with every comeback. Fingers crossed, though, it's coming someday, my approval. But anyway, I just can't help but read this and be kind of bitter, too, because I really would have done justice to them. Recent piece on my Substack talks about their true character and why they specifically are incredible artists, but I digress. It's frustrating to see people who don't show them the respect they deserve get to interview them. If you have the privilege, the honor, of asking TXT about their incredible artistry, their incredible story, and you ask them block questions and turn your summary article of what they said into a weird rehash of K-pop stats, it's, it feels like such a missed opportunity, such a waste. So, 
GQ, just hire me next time, please. Or I'll even do it for free just to give them justice. And again, I like to keep in mind my biases when I get nitpicky. So maybe the article was better than I thought and I'm just seeing it through my petty lens right now. But I don't think it was well done at all. It was not great PR for the group. It didn't do anything for anyone. It was just so, so strange. And pieced together in a way that didn't flow and truly made me feel like some AI did it. I mean... Again, I'm trying to just kind of keep bias in check here, but I can't help it. This reads like AI. Let's move on to the next topic, but I'm curious what you think of the profile, so feel free to send me your feedback. Topic 2. The State of the Hallyu Wave Globally An annual Korea Foundation report for 2022 has revealed that the number of actual official documented Hallyu fans around the world reached a new height. 178 million. So if just K-culture fans were the equivalent of a country, it would be the eighth largest country in the world. This is an 18-fold increase in the number of global Hallyu fans compared to when the survey started back in 2012. 18-fold increase in just 11 years. I'll link to the full report on my site, but if you just want a few brief, interesting tidbits from it, the largest contributor to this growth was cited as a rise in official fan club participation, a 120% increase from 2012. In part, that surge in club participation is not just due to quantity of groups and therefore clubs, but also the excitement around in-person meetups again, post-start of the pandemic plus the increase of K-culture access globally on streaming services, apps, etc. It's interesting that the most Hallyu fans, over 73%, are cited as being from Asia and Oceania. But the largest growth was in Europe. In just a year's time, increased by 37%. The report looked at many areas of K-culture, the main survey limitation, I will say this is official data, so the number of Hallyu fans globally is probably much bigger than what can be officially accounted for. And also, that the report includes not everywhere in the world, but 118 countries, so really substantial findings. The Hallyu wave continues to really make itself known if you look at the official counts of most bought music globally last year. The top-selling recording artists globally for 2022, 20th place, Imagine Dragons. 19, The Beatles. 18, Juice World, 17, Post Malone. 16, Billie Eilish. 15, Lil Baby. 14, Kendrick Lamar. 13, Young Boy Never Broke Again. 12, Kanye West. 11, Eminem. 10, Ed Sheeran. 9, Jay Shu. 8. Harry Styles. 7. Above Harry Styles. Stray Kids. 6. 17. 5. The Weeknd. 4. Bad Bunny. 3. Drake. 2. BTS. 1. Taylor Swift. Taylor had the second highest selling record for Midnight's, but number one was Bad Bunny for sales. BTS's Proof got fourth place. 17's Face the Sun, 7th, Stray Kids Maxident, number 6, Blackpink's Born Pink, number 8. So yeah, significant K-pop represented on both lists for biggest sales in the world last year. Topic number 3, a bombshell Rolling Stone investigation about the turmoil onset of the show Jenny from Blackpink was said to be a part of The Idol. As of recording time, this show's still in limbo. No clarification about a release date. It was ordered to series back in November 2021, set to air fall 2022, replacing House of the Dragon in a prime time slot. This HBO show, The Idol, was set to be a sharp satire of Hollywood and what women have to go through in Hollywood. This is the show created by The Weeknd and co-created with Sam Levinson of Euphoria fame. Sam Levinson suddenly took over the production when its first lead, Amy Simetz, left. So after a handful of teaser trailers, even posts about a rap party that ended up being kind of insincere, lots of start and stops, initial release dates set, this show is still in limbo. Production took a break in April, came back in May, and Amy was gone, Sam was in charge, and the majority of crew did not return. New people trying to finish a show that at the time had been about 80% of the way done being made. 
Sam Levinson has been reportedly again and again called out for disorganization, like showing up to sets without clear guidelines, the kind of outlines for daily filming work that are usually prepared in advance so that you could get the show on the road so shows and their shoots might extend really deep into the night because of him being unprepared when he comes to set. He's also been viewed as very impulsive, changing scripts on the spot, not giving people a heads up about changes in character arcs. To be fair, some stars like On Euphoria really sing his praises and say, he really worked in partnership with me to craft my character, and I loved the on-the-spot changes he would make when I suggested them. Some people love that style of work. Don't try to make it work. The second it's not working, change it. Some like the on-the-fly method, but others view him as just controlling not a team player, not willing to just play ball with what other people already started. The show also went through a big tonal shift on set because The Weeknd apparently didn't care for how the show was becoming a quote-unquote feminist perspective. So I guess the original show was meant to be more empowering and it was turning more into the type of Hollywood story that it was supposed to be making fun of. I'm not going to repeat the most gory, violent, graphic details, but I will say they were there when it comes to script changes once Sam was in charge and the direction shifted. Like, this was really, oh my gosh, this is horrible, changes. I think that's pretty objective to say this was like a new level of torture. This show was also tonally mismatched because The Weeknd had very limited availability. Obviously, he's touring the world. Plus, Levinson didn't even really come to set until weeks into production because he was still working on Euphoria Season 2. Because of him taking over, the show kind of did start from scratch, and they basically flushed $54 million down the drain. The only thing left to film when he got on board was the finale. It was just going to be a short six-episode show. They just had episode six, but he came in, changed everything, and they just wasted $54 million on five episodes that would not see the light of day. The sources who spoke out about the sets concerning direction and disorder said Amy was really trying to make this work and had a good vision that was made very hard. Like she was expected to deliver euphoria level glitz and glam and production value on half the budget of euphoria. The show did end up cutting out costs, like The weekend opened up his big mansion so they could film there instead of renting a place. They also save money on extras because he just filmed concert scenes for the show at his own SoFi Stadium show, confusing the crowd. Another big concern was with Blackpink's Jenny being tokenized because she really didn't apparently get many lines, at least in this new version. Someone said, quote, they didn't let her talk that much. Her job was to sit there, look pretty, unquote. But she was viewed as the biggest get for the show, and she did help generate a ton of PR for this. Lots of online buzz with anything she does. So now it feels like they used her. As a pop culture news junkie, I am not surprised at all by these complaints. I can't corroborate them, but I'm inclined to believe them because every past piece I've read about Levinson is kind of damning and paints him in this light, leaving crew members very confused, out of the loop, scrambling, frustrated, anxious. So this kind of fits with everything I've read about him before. And it does sound like Simetz was given a really bad hand. She was dealt a bad hand, like high expectations without the budget to match on a very short timetable too that ended up being unnecessarily rushed. It was kind of just figured out. Lots needed to be figured out first. Creative differences happen all the time and change a show, but 80% into filming and you still have a big start over moment. It's just, just sad and frustrating. Now I will acknowledge my bias because I'm just always compelled to be super transparent with you all. I'm inclined to always support Rolling Stone reports because I know some of the people who work there. So I will admit that bias to seeing their coverage as believable, but I'm not surprised. I do think these 13 crew members who spoke with them paint an accurate picture. And again, of course, I can't myself corroborate beyond what they have said here, but I'm inclined to believe this story, especially the part about Jenny, because there is a long history of tokenizing women, especially Asian women, making them in Hollywood just have the role of sit still, look pretty, I'm disappointed but not surprised. 
This whole thing is so not surprising, but still disappointing. I always am aware of and nervous about, as I've said before on this show about another certain show, Cough Cough Chad Cough Cough, when K-pop is made part of the story, it often does come across as not genuine, like just totally for that clout, that they know they'll generate with K-pop names attached. I only like when K-pop stars make cameos on Western shows if they actually have a real character, a full character, a three-dimensional character, lots of screen time, the chance to really act, not just look good, and lend their name and thumbs up to the show. I also do think it's super easy for any movie or show or song, any media to change from satire to the thing it tried to satirize really quickly. I do think that's just a big moral of the story for a lot of things. It's very easy for satire to not work and kind of ironically just become like an expose of itself. Satire really is an underappreciated art form that people think might be easier than it really is to make it effective because so easily it can skew into not working and not being what should count as an official satire. This is pop culture analysis buff content, so I'll stop rambling here. We have a lot more news to get to, so let's move on. Topic number four, the latest twists and turns in the SM Hybe Kaiko company drama. The full backstory is in a few previous episodes, NCT Tokyo, Hybes and Lows. The latest developments, let's go through a timeline of what happened since those episodes came out. SM Entertainment announced a new strategic partnership with Kaiko that sounds incredibly generous to Kaiko, giving Kaiko ownership of basically every part of ticketing for the yet-to-be-debuted Seoul Arena, a new venue being constructed for K-pop shows specifically. They hope that it'll help streamline their business if they just have one company as the sole player in the ticketing aspect of their work. They also said this deal will help them focus on what they consider a higher priority than many others, expanding virtual tech, AI usage, things like that. Fan questions and concerns were covered in a YouTube video posted by then-co-CEOs Chris Lee and Yeonjun Tak, finally together for not a back-and-forth of statements, but an on-camera, genuine response to fan questions. Truly, I actually really appreciate this video. This one felt not as scripted, even though I'm sure it still was, at least in part. It just felt more human, less cold, more transparent, more honest and forthcoming than any of the past videos. The vitriol was not there, in part probably because they started with a humbleness and apology for the chaotic headlines, chaotic twists and turns that have plagued this situation. And they laid out some very promising ways they want to turn around the company culture. They laid out specific examples, which I always look for, not just platitudes, when a company says they're pledging something. One of my biggest issues with past sustainability pledges, for example, from SM, was the lack of specifics. Like, how are you going to do that? They actually got to specifics, so I appreciate it. Maybe a low bar, but it was nice to hear. Now, keep in mind though, these are all still what they are saying they'll do. They haven't done it yet, let's hold them accountable to do this, because I think quite a few of the ideas they put forth and say they're going to do are worth pursuing, holding their feet to the fire about. Some I don't know, but here's what they said, then I'll share my thoughts. In response to past complaints that they don't promote all of their individual artists equally or fairly, like Taeyeon for example, not getting the solo career love he deserves, they promise to change that, and one way they're doing that is by not continuing to infinitely expand NCT. So the NCT Tokyo subunit will be its last increase. Then they will focus more on just prioritizing and promoting, helping, uplifting the current members. They also said indirectly, seemed to be an indirect reference to chaos at a previous NCT concert, because they promised in the future they'll have a special department with people hired to handle foot traffic at their artist shows to prevent a stampede, I guess. They also promised future transparency and more clarity on their artist schedules, as well as having content surrounding the promo for each artist, quote, in an unbiased manner, unquote. They also responded to a common fan concern that they're not taking seriously cases of internet slander, libel, defamation, misinformation, smear campaigns, etc. So they said they'll set up a tip line called Kwanya 119, tentatively, where you can report issues. 
They also said they'll try to be more transparent about what they're doing behind the scenes legally to defend their artists and said, you know, the secrecy is not really because we just want to keep you in the dark. When things are in court, there's a lot we can't speak openly about during ongoing cases. That's the nature of the legal system. They also said they plan to use AI to filter out fake news about their artists. They also proposed that social media companies create a red badge, kind of like a blue check mark, but a red one, for people who are repeat offenders of misinformation or libel. New transparency as much as they can with legal cases they take on when it comes to defending their artist reps, a new tip line, an AI filter to get rid of fake stories, proposing the implementation of a red check system for accounts that are repeat offenders, the end to the infinite expansion of NCT approach, future control more of crowds at their concerts, more transparency and impartiality when it comes to the artist schedules and promo of them. Lastly, this is my favorite part, they said they want to set up an artist care center separate from the current trainee development center, a separate new place for mental and physical health support even sleep management aid, just tons of different holistic health and wellness related aid for the artists. So here's what I think. What I really approve of and think is great, that artist care center. Truly any music company anywhere in the world should do something similar. Just take care of your artists better. In the long run, your artist will make you more money if that's your concern, if they're not burned out. So plus it has been a concern for SM, specifically with past falls and Taeyeon's back issues and Hechen's recent diagnosis. How much they take seriously this stuff has been a constant concern. So I love this. This is the main promise I really want to hold them accountable to. I also do like they're planning to be more open and promote all the artists equally. And they have been promoting Taeyeon's Fashion Month attendance, which I love to see. The tip line idea, I think, is pretty good. I will say, though, tip lines in general, at least in the U.S., I bet South Korean culture might respect this more. But in the U.S., anyone who sets up a tip line, they're bound to get a bunch of pranksters that just crash it. So that idea might get scrapped because of bad actors, but maybe they could do something like give you a passcode before you can call through Bubble or Weverse, some way to filter out bots slash pranksters. The red badge idea, I really like because I'm always very on the side of free speech and just kind of letting stuff stay online. I think ultimately two conversations get conflated way too much when I say I like supporting free speech and amplification. So I think the issues just get conflated too much. I can really go on a soapbox about this. Really, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but it basically comes down to, I think the arguments get smooshed together and shouldn't about should this content be online versus amplified. So it's not about, hey, free speech, take it off or leave it up. What I'm concerned with is if it's posted and left B, or if it is amplified speech. That kind of part of the algorithm is what I think the conversation should actually be more about rather than whether or not banning it itself is a good idea. The red badge, I think, is a good way to do that, to make people stop and think, hey, this user is not super credible, but still leave their content up. So you don't just take it down, but you do give a, any amplification of their message comes with that caveat. My big issue is with the AI filtering of fake news because algorithms, AI just needs more advancements before it can be trusted to deem fakeness or not. And how do you define that? Who's putting together the algorithm? There are bound to be a lot of oversights, a lot of issues, and then it seems so distracting. Like rather than just flag and deal with issues, they want to give the AI the job, but they're still going to have to flag the issues too, like fact check, double check with the AI. So it just does not seem like it will be the useful, quick and easy help they portray it to be. I would really be concerned about that algorithm leading to a lot of unintended consequences. But I am curious what you think. Feel free to let me know. But yeah, I am quite pleased that they did cover real fan concerns. Because sometimes people are like, a lot of you have been asking us our stance on blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I'm pretty sure no one asked that. You just want to say your canned answer. No, they actually said, we hear you and your genuine concerns. It was hopeful for a better era for SM's artists and fans. The next twist in this saga February 22nd, when SM and Kaiko's new agreement was official. 
giving Keiko not just ticketing in charge status, but exclusive physical and digital album distribution rights domestically. And SM has agreed to work with Keiko's overseas equivalents as well. So now Keiko runs domestic distribution, domestic ticketing, and by the way, they now hope to increase the amount of SM artist concerts per year. Plus, this partnership clearly has a long-term vision because SM and Keiko will co-produce a new global group from Global Recruits for a new audition show. I would also expect tons of K-pop stars, from SM specifically, to get first dibs on the new Seoul arena when it opens, because Kaiko does have a management contract with that arena. Hybe has looked at this partnership and said, hold up, not so fast. Arguing Kaiko can't be trusted here and will unfairly exploit their preemptive share purchase rights. So basically, they argue this is not smart for SM because Kaiko acting now will get like a discount. So eventually they'll get more and more money from SM that they would not at a non-discounted rate in a different circumstance. They also just argue SM here is holding way too much bargaining power and clout over them. They also called out an issue they highlighted in contracts. So if you work for HYBE, apparently there are specific issues detailed in your contract. So certain jobs you can't take in the future. They worry about the future of SM employees and a lack of transparency overall about parts of those employee contracts. A big sticking point in all this seems to be this contract stipulation that allotted a billion dollars annually to go to Lee Su Man's tree planting initiative. Those helping champion this initiative are Lee Sumian's people connected to his real estate interests. So conflict of interest is a big concern about how they decide what this money will be spent on. February 24th, CJENM issued a statement saying, we're not involved, we've officially decided not to acquire any stake in SM. Hybe continued to speak out against the Keiko SM deal, arguing SM would be smart and attract more investors if they ditched this idea. February 28th, Hybe submitted a petition to the Financial Supervisory Service asking for an investigation into a large recent share purchase from SM stock they called suspicious. So they accused whoever just bought a suspicious amount of stock from SM, they accused them of doing so to mess with the market, mess with the value of the tender offer. So the people who said yes to the tender offer before this stock purchase would not get the same value now. It's not worth as much. Is it all water under the bridge? Because they announced an SM with Hybe campaign and launched joint social media for it. Quote, Hybe proposes to return 30% of SM's standalone net income to the shareholders for the next three years and introduce a management compensation system that will ensure their responsible management, unquote. They continue to say, hey, we're going to push back on the Keiko deal and want to shield shareholders from the issues this deal could plague them with. So SM and Keiko focused on the future. Hybe focused more on the current people with a stake in this. Mr. Bang from Hybe was on CNN's business show called Quest, March 2nd, where he voiced his concerns about K-pop interest plateauing, reaching its peak. He noted recent music trends like Afrobeats, Latin music, on the rise in popularity, while K-pop's rise is just not the pace it once was. So he says it was basically necessary to take a big business move to get to that big momentum again. Like I said in the last episode about this, I mean, how do you get bigger than BTS? How do you reach that high peak of interest again than BTS splashing onto the scene? So of course they felt a big ground-shaking choice was needed. But he said, quote, it wouldn't be correct to say that we're trying to take over the whole industry, unquote. What seems to have stirred more ire from critics than just the fact Hybe bought Lee Sumian's stake in SM is the goal for the future to expand that and then own 40% ownership as opposed to like less than 20. I get that people are caught up on the interesting quote about fearing K-pop's momentum has stalled, but I found most interesting from that interview him saying he thinks this slowdown is permanent. I mean, he said, quote, I doubt that, unquote, when asked if this slowdown he thinks is temporary.
March 3rd, a Seoul district court ruled in favor of Lee Soo-mian, allowing his injunction, so SM can currently not issue any new shares. They were about to issue convertible bonds worth over $166 million USD. He also is more in-depth than ever, explained himself in a long statement. I will skip around a bit, but these are direct quotes. Quote, ever since becoming a bushy-haired ballad singer in the 1970s, I have lived my entire life with the public. I received more than enough love as a singer and an MC. When I was planning SM in 1989, I was young in a startup. I thought about what system singers needed. I researched a Western model of the music industry and established SM's corporate structure. I have to interject here just to say, actually, he's implying that he created the trainee system we see today in K-pop. Actually, that was probably Johnny Kitigawa, but I digress. Back to the statement. The achievements of K-pop made around the world by SM, alongside JYP, YG, HYBE, and more, is a miracle and blessing to Korea. As I am not passing SM down to my children or relatives, I believe I have to give it up to the industry's best who can make it more prosperous. To me, best is producing. Producing is a 24-7 world of passion and creativity where you must endure endless failures until the birth of a star. If there is no public, there is no star. And if there is no star, there is no producer. The past two years have been a time to find the best that most suits SM. I've urged current management to prepare for an SM era without Lee Soo-man. This is because I've already decided to step down from the SM stage. To me, the best was Hybe. Bang Si-hyuk is someone who's experienced a time of struggle. He lived for music and created the record-breaking BTS. Side note, I find it very interesting that he brings up competitor companies and BTS. Like, he hasn't been this humble and inclusive in talking about K-pop's impact ever. Back to the statement. I felt that he treated his artists with the same affection as me. As I wrap up the first part of my life as SM's champion, I am now moving on to part two. My next is a place where technology meets culture, unquote. March 6th. Kaiko prepared a new tender offer, a 25% premium, at over $115 a share. Kaiko basically hoped to acquire up to 35% of SM Entertainment's outstanding shares. Outstanding shares are the amount investors are able to get, what's available to you. Because Lee Soo-man won an injunction, where to get the shares from was limited. So Keiko had to buy those shares from existing shareholders rather than from new shares, brand new shares, that were not previously owned by a different person. This move followed Keiko raising $966 million from wealth funds, wealth funds meaning government-run, government-generated investment funds, from Singapore and Saudi Arabia. TLDR, basically, Keiko outbid Hybe with their tender offer and their bigger aspiration for stake acquisition. They were more upfront about how much they wanted and how much they were willing to pay for it. March 12th, Hybe quit, said, yeah, Keiko outbid us and we are backing out of this plan. They said in the future, they plan to cooperate, have an amicable relationship with Keiko, but they backed out to avoid more drama, basically, and economic turmoil. They worried about how that would affect investor confidence and shareholder value if they kept their role in this, excluding themselves from a narrative to not overcomplicate it in the minds of investors. SM Entertainment statement in response basically said, we respect Hybe's decision. In response, both Hybe and Keiko actually saw their stocks go up significantly. SM stocks really tanked, and they lost nearly $633 million in market cap on the first post-HYBE withdrawal trading day. Basically what people who had been against the partnership the whole time had been warning about, that SM's stock would tank if something went wrong, and sure enough, Keiko stepped in and outbid them. March 15th-ish, SM Entertainment signed a new business agreement with a legal corporation, Sejon, to assist in their efforts to crack down on artist defamation, misinformation, etc. So they're really showing, hey, we're going to walk the walk with our future artist protection plan, not just talk the talk. 
Meanwhile, Mr. Bang has been talking about HYBE in interviews at home and abroad. He's admitted that BTS's comeback as a group may not be in 2025 when they're done with their military time. That's just a tentative. They can't promise anything. He also has been very consistent in his expression of concern about K-pop popularity plateauing, that it needs a new driver forward. He actually used a David and Goliath analogy for K-pop versus Western music agencies, which I can nerd it out over in a literary context. I actually dive into the David and Goliath origins in the Manifesto Day One Deep Dive and hyphen-themed episode. Shameless plug. Anyway, he brought up that same metaphor I explained there. He also confirmed that Hype had been looking into acquiring SM since 2019, pre-pandemic. They had actually put in two previous offers, but SM rejected those previous offers. As for why he made the third attempt, he said, quote, I believe that a lot of the factors opposing our acquisition back then had disappeared, unquote. The big, big day for news updates on this case is still March 31st, when the 3.0 SM plan is officially set to start, and SM's new board of directors to lead that change will be official. Big shareholders meeting the 31st. Topic number five, speaking of SM, NCT 127 have a graphic novel coming out, and will be the first ever K-pop group to have a big official graphic novel, with Z2 Comics no less. So here's the deal. It's going to be called NCT 127 Limitless, out late this summer from the company behind comics with Poppy, Elvis, Weird Al, Rico Nasty. Yeah, they've run the gamut with which artists they work with. There are different hardcover versions, some deluxe signed ones as well. The signed Platinum Edition is just $300. It looks beautiful, though. This book is pricey. Even the non-signed versions are relatively expensive, but it really does look beautiful, and I'm sure overseas shipping factors into that final cost being so big. So it's not like they're price gouging you necessarily. I would love for this to just have a digital preview version, a condensed webtoon free option to see at least some of it. Here's the official plot description. Quote, presented in the Manhwa, South Korean comic format, Limitless follows NCT 127 in the midst of their world tour as the group rehearses for its biggest performance in America to date, a sold-out stadium show in New York City. The night before the concert, however, the group encounters mysterious dreams, putting Mark, Johnny, Taeyeon, Junwoo, and Doyeon in otherworldly scenarios. This ultimately creates a reality-crossing mystery that the five, alongside Taeyeon, Yuta, Jaehyun, and Hechen, will unite to solve. As NCT 127 grapples with this enigma, they must overcome their fear in both the real world and this new, surreal dreamscape, unquote. Yes, SMCU tie-ins, NCT World tie-ins, NCTCU, whatever you want to call it. The lore of their dreams within dreams within dreams, Inception, Matrix, Combination, storyline I've outlined, ad nauseum in NCT Talk episodes of the show. It's coming to life in a brand new way. Really excited for this. And it's really interesting that they have it split up. So in the description, they say five members are in these mystical scenarios. And then the others are an afterthought. So I wonder if this is just the first in a series. Maybe the sequel has the other four members being the main characters more. Or maybe they're just humans and the first five are the ones who end up with superpowers, supernatural, parallel world jumping ability. I don't know, but I'm quite intrigued. Number six, 17 and their March 10th through 12th annual fan meetup, Carrotland. Five main highlights that I want to summarize. My choices for five best things about it. One, all of the random dance play and song covers. So many. If you're a multi-fandom person, great night for you. The hype boy dance that the fans actually helped lead them in. Joshua doing Augusty's Dechita. That was a personal highlight for me. Lots of new jeans, Blackpink. Mingyu doing Nyan Son Pop. Iconic. Just really, really fun, smart choices. Number two, ask who's spoiling on day one that their comeback will be this April. Apparently he was told, don't reveal that until day three, but he overtly said, yeah, forget that. I'm too excited. It's day one, but I'm already saying, yes, I can confirm April comeback.
And I can also confirm that 17 karat K-pop will get an exclusive interview for that. I'm just kidding. Just fantasizing what he really told the crowd. But you never know. Let's make it happen, finally. <laughs> anyway, part three. I love the messages. The members prepared their own fan signs. And the message they teared up over from their parents. Their parents had these handwritten letters to surprise them. So they stare at the screen, see these beautiful handwritten letters, very emotional stuff, not a dry eye in the house energy, <laughs> really intense, but in the best way. Just a very moving presentation. So the dance play, the letters, the signs, Esku spoiler early. For, I'll say, Vernon joining BSS for fighting. That was a cool, unofficial version that definitely should have a studio cut to go with it. And five, I'll say, the set list. One of my personal all-time favorite Seventeen songs is Pretty You. And that gem started off the show. They had the cuter stuff like My My, Pang, Healing. But then the just super fun, danceable, live show essentials like Back It Up. Back It Up is just next level live. It's suddenly like from a bop to a banger when it's live. They also mixed things up with, instead of like, Aju Nice endlessly, it was an endless version of fighting. So that was a fun twist. But they kept the endless encore charm of their live shows. They also, of course, had the more dramatic stuff like Imperfect Love. It was a really impressive variety, spanning eras and just moods and genres. Number seven, something definitively darker. Let's talk cults. A new show, a docuseries recently came out on Netflix called In the Name of God, A Holy Betrayal. It covers some cult leaders in South Korea, and it has become the talk of the town. The series focuses on uncovering the backstory of Jun Myun-sook's group, the Christian Gospel Mission. This cult series drew the attention even more when a list of addresses started circulating online related to which places were considered affiliated with the cult. Maybe a member owned the business or the business was used for cult meetings. Who was implicated? And so one of the cafes on the list of addresses circulating member of boy band DKZ, Kyunyun's parents. DKZ's company statement March 7th was pretty much just denial and ignorance, saying no, no connection to the cult. If cult meetings were held in his parents' cafe, they had no idea. Sorry, we will shut down, cease activity there. But March 8th, he spoke to Dispatch at length, and then that interview aired March 13th, where he came forward and said, yeah, actually, I did grow up in that cult. My parents did. I was born and raised in it. My mom had been swept into it by her sister. Now I see the error in the thinking. But he was raised to believe, be brainwashed to believe, this guy was like a messiah who could do no wrong. So while he was on the lamb, he just viewed him as being a religiously persecuted do-gooder, like the world was out to get him. This figure he had to protect and view as doing no harm. So he talks at length about the worldview of someone in a cult who doesn't know any better because they were born in it. They don't know what's abnormal admiration and defense of someone and denial of the facts, confirmation bias, etc. Also maintaining this mystique in his head was this leader because of the timing, because he was born in 2000, the year the cult leader was already on the run. Then he was arrested, the cult leader, by the time Kyunyun was in elementary school. So basically the mystery, the sense that he's this larger-than-life presence that you can't even touch or go near, he's just more of an abstract presence than just someone you interact with like any normal person. He had that star power on a pedestal status because he was never actually like physically just in a room with Kyunyun growing up. So he thinks that amplified the mystique. He also pinpoints a moment where his mom was really transfixed and sucked into this cult, being after he had a medical issue in second grade. He got fluid in his brain and was near death, but after some pastors visited, he was miraculously cured. He healed really quickly, and his mom really started heavily believing in the power of miracles, and she got really into spirituality, which doesn't obviously always lead to a cult, but it may prime some people to be vulnerable to a cult leader's influence and promises of spiritual salvation, miracles before your eyes. It's a tempting thing to believe in. 
Some other interesting anecdotes from that interview. He says he joined the Colts Choir because he really just couldn't financially afford otherwise. He needed to vocal train, he wanted to vocal train, but he lacked resources to do so. So another way the cults prey on vulnerabilities. Because a lot of cults, they take all your money or a big part of it. Your earnings go to them, then they act like they will redisperse that money amongst your little closed-off community Anyway, he also said his belief in this figure was strengthened by his being bullied in school about being an accused cult member because it just made him dig in his heels and feel like a sense of denial. And I'll show them who's really got the spiritual saviors on their side kind of a thing. He viewed them as just not understanding. So that really actually, raising doubts actually just solidified his view. This is why it can be so hard to get out of a cult. He fervently denied ever letting this group and their influences, their worldview, infiltrate his life in DKZ. Never talked religion, spirituality with fans, the bandmates, etc. Kept that life totally separate. And he sounds genuinely really deeply reflective about that. And he said he's facing pressure to withdraw from the group as of recording time he is not because he argues his idol status makes it more imperative to stay and use this platform to warn people about this. He also says it kind of terrifies him to think with clout that comes with celebrity, he could have been considered a target for propaganda. Like he may have been being prepared to become a public face of the group. And so now he wants to do the opposite rather than use fame as a way to further propaganda. He wants to use his platform to further raise awareness about groups like this and the brainwashing they do. Meanwhile, the Agadon Singh cult is affiliated with Sonara Records still, which causes fans to be boycotting it. Sonara Records was the biggest music distributor at one point in South Korea. In the 80s and 90s, it held a huge percent of market share in physical albums, in part because they were able to sell music cheaper than competitors because they used cheap labor, cult member labor. After a two-year lawn probe in 1998, the cult leader was convicted of exploitation, tax evasion, and embezzlement. But acquitted of murder, that charge was considered to not meet the burden of proof, not have enough concrete evidence. The sentence was four years in prison and a $5.4 million fine. Despite the punishment, though, the cult lives on, and a leading member of the cult is still CEO of Sonara Records. So people are boycotting, buying albums from there for the exploitative labor that goes into selling that music, as well as the cult affiliation, because it's not just being a cult itself, but especially people are outraged at this group because they are affiliated with, they're implicated in multiple deaths. The cult has sued Netflix over the documentary. Specifically, they want an injunction to take down episodes five and six, they are also demanding a 10 million won per day payment if those episodes are not removed. Number eight, let's talk about another scandal and then get to the lighter stuff. A bunch of famous artists are accused of illegally evading South Korea's mandatory military service. A group of brokers was arrested for apparently helping people get fake doctor's notes saying they had epilepsy or similar conditions that would then exempt them from active military service. Rumors really led to the truth, actually, because the rumor was about a famous rapper being implicated, being one of the clients of this shady group. One of the people suspected of the evasion was Ravi. Interestingly, he had an arrest warrant put out for him that was later dismissed. They then had his charge grouping him with a bunch of others. So now over a hundred people will together be a part of this joint investigation. So a massive investigation into all of them at once. And now Ravi and Nafla will be tried alongside six others for the alleged evasion. Over 100 people implicated, and a handful including Ravi, will be standing trial for it. The first hearing as of recording time is set for April 11th. I'll keep you posted. Meanwhile, Nam Taehyun was booked for a DUI. The investigation into what happened was confirmed March 8th. His license was revoked after his blood alcohol level test came back with .114. 
March 10th, his company issued a statement trying to clear up what actually happened. And they say, actually, it wasn't because he drove drunk. He was just moving his car and it ended up crashing. But he wasn't going to drive drunk. He was just trying to move his car. This said, quote, car hit the side mirror of a taxi driving by. Contrary to what some news outlets reported, Nam Taehyun did not drive about 20 meters following the collision with the taxi, but moved up about 5 meters and parked again, unquote. They also said he was basically innocent because he was waiting for a designated driver. So he did not plan on driving home in that state and had to move his car because the designated driver needed to enter the space. Why a designated driver would just kind of let him be the one to move that car doesn't sound like a good idea to me, but I don't know for sure what happened. This is the agency's telling of events. Time will tell what really happened and I will keep you posted. On to lighter news. Lots of twice news. Their album has just been smashing record after record. They've performed on The Tonight Show, The Kelly Clarkson Show. They had a mini zine special with Billboard. The Empire State Building lit up in their signature colors to celebrate the release. They've done the New York City tour promo blitz. And they still somehow managed time to get another ambassadorship for a brand. Because Sana now reps Espor. They also launched a one-of-a-kind, immersive Roblox experience. Really interesting. This is the first of its kind. If it's successful, it sounds like more artists, especially with Republic Records and or in partnership like this one with Imperial Records, Universal Music Group, JYP Entertainment, big cross-company collaboration. Maybe if this is a big hit, other artists will get this too. An immersive, constant presence in a twice Roblox experience. So in Roblox, if you go to Twice Square, you can buy and trade digital items and looks, interact with the virtual members of Twice, leave messages for them, fan letters. There's a voice chat feature if you're an age-verified user. You can play games, an escape room, a trivia game. There's a lot going on there. You can go play in Twice Square and see cute digital versions of Twice's music video sets and just a Twice aesthetic all over the place. And apparently, this will be a new hub for info and updates. Roblox's statement said, quote, Twice plans to keep the experience updated with new content and dropping in. They're hopeful fans treat the space as a hangout and information source, unquote. It's a cool idea. Now, my take on this is also just wary of how long it'll last and if it'll become a trend because this is the most hope thing for me to do. So on brand, I have to do a nerdy economic twist to my analysis. Because Roblox was implicated in the recent Silicon Valley bank collapse, I'm going to give you a nice condensed version of what happened there. Don't worry about the economic jargon. I will boil it down for you. That's what I do. I love to do it. Yes, I can make a tie in here to K-pop. I love K-pop connections to seemingly unrelated events in the economic world. Anyway, so Silicon Valley bank collapse. Long story short. The biggest bank collapse since 2008 in the U.S. The bank collapsed because there was a run, a bank run. Basically what happened was these people bet something would happen and it didn't. The opposite happened. And because the opposite started happening, they were losing money on their bets. And so they were basically telling each other, hey, um, don't tell the others because they don't want to cause alarm, but we're losing money. And then the people they told were like, we're losing money super loud. And everyone else heard it. They passed the news to others like, hey, let's not start a panic, but we're losing money. And then they said, we're losing money. And it just spread. And so everyone ran to the banks to get their money while it was still there. And you can't have everyone show up at the banks at the same time when they don't have enough physical on-hand cash for you. A lot of bank money is not real tangible money. You can't just all go at once. A lot of it's just in the system. Like, yeah, theoretically, you do have this amount of money, but it's just a digital number. So then they were, like, unable to pay people. It caused a lot of ripple effects for people who do business with this bank. Roblox held $150 million with that bank. And there is some insurance on amounts up to $250K. For sure, Roblox can recoup 250 k of the $150 million, but the rest of it could be lost. Companies like Etsy were also affected, had payment processing delays. This is a big deal for big and small business owners alike. 
as well as the bigger economic world, because when one market freaks out and says we're losing money, investors in other sectors say, oh my gosh, are we going to lose money next? Is this a broader economic trend, a harbinger of a bad time to come? Are we in a recession? And it just escalates. So then other markets freak out and it's a contagion and basically it's madness. Now, it hasn't really gone that far yet, I would say. Things were kind of course corrected, but we could spend a whole other hour talking about the right way to course correct it or not. But SVB did have some FDIC insured money, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, but not all of it. So just what happens with that company in the future looked pretty up in the air all of a sudden because of the bank run. So it's just a reminder, any announcement about something any company does really, any partnership, more sensitive to sudden changes than you think, especially digital-focused companies. They could promise an exciting thing, and it could look suddenly like it might be a goner the next day. It's very fast. So I just found it an interesting week for Roblox, for sure. Number 10, big miscellaneous roundup. 17 won big at the Japan GDAs, album of the year, and two of the best three album wins. The third in that category went to BTS, who also won in a ton of other categories. Other winners included Ive, Very Very, Kepler, and Jungkook on his own for his Charlie Puth collab, Left and Right. 5050 announced their fandom name will be Honeys. Honeys, that's cute, like a hundred. Susie won Best Actress in a Series at the 21st Director's Cut Awards. Jimin stands, it is our time to shine. Jimin buys people, here we go. Jimin's solo debut is here. His Tonight Show two-day residency is here. His new Tiffany and Company ambassadorship. It's all coming together for him. So exciting. J-Hope is now house ambassador for Louis Vuitton. Lay Seraphim and Tia One have both separately revealed their upcoming light sticks. Jisoo is now an ambassador for Dunst. V now reps Siminvest. Congrats to Beck Ayun, who is getting married. And congrats to Seven, the artist who is set to marry actress Lee Dahe, May 6th. Soon Lee ended his prison time. Yunbin from Blank to Y left the group after it turned out to be true, the accusation of dating violence. You can check out Red Velvet's Casebo Dome show via Beyond Live, April 1st and 2nd. Some WJSN contract updates. Luda and Dawan did not renew their contracts. Chun Shao and the other currently inactive members officially cut ties with the group, not just the company, and eight members remain. Top media updates. Lee Jin Hyuk did not renew his contract, as well as five obtention members. Lee Huanhui left Boys Planet citing health issues, but left top media citing just contract expiration. Rocky left Astro and the company. Munich left DKZ. Taesyeon from 2PM signed with WME. That's a big one for him. Zien from Laboom joined Blade Entertainment with the hopes of focusing on acting. Members of Alice, Doe, and Yeonjae are going on a health-related hiatus. Paul Kim left Neuron Music. He's now part of Wise Entertainment, W-H-Y-E-S. Jinny, former NMIX member, joined Instagram. Baron left VAV and ended his contract with A-Team Entertainment. L from Infinite, a.k.a. Kim Myunsu, joined Look Media. The King from Black Six, his name, stage name, literally The King, dropped out of the show Peak Time amid school violence rumors. CNU from B1A4 renewed his contract with WM Entertainment. Jareen left the group Beauty Box after being expelled, quote, due to serious misconduct related to her foreign visa and many reasons for breach of contract as an artist, unquote. Four Luna members, Heejin, Kimlip, Jinsoul, and Cherry, signed with Mod House, home to the group Triple S. They signed on March 17th. St. Patrick's Day, that's got to be a good luck sign. SNSD's Sohyun started a personal YouTube channel. Korean Air now sponsors Blackpink's World Tour. YG Entertainment now has a partnership with them. Beko revealed a solo lightstick design. Intuit have rebranded to the group Sky, S-K-Y-E. They say the E is added for emotion. Jeno from NCT got COVID. 
Felix from Stray Kids has donated so much over the years that he is now an official member of the Save the Children Honors Club. New MCs are here for The Show, called The Show. Tempest members Xiao Jun and Hyun Soap and Yosan from 80s. BTS have some new Guinness World Records, including most Kids' Choice Awards wins for a music group. They are also the most streamed group in Spotify history, earning 31.96 billion streams, nearly double what it was when they first broke the record back in 2021. So in just since 2021, they've doubled their record. Lots of artists are either enlisting or about to own Sunwoo, Monster X's Minghyuk, J-Hope, Kuhn, and Kogyo from Uptension, Mino, Nam Joohyuk, Soonseek from Victon, Y from Golden Child, SF9's Jayoon, and Chahun from In Flying. Street Kids will be on Jimmy Kimmel Live March 29th. A new BT21 Doc Martens collab is coming March 30th. New jeans keep the ambassadorships coming. They now model for McDonald's, Apple, the eyewear brand Kareen, Levi's. They also starred in the Minavi Tokyo Girls Collection Spring Summer Fashion Show, performing three songs during their exciting opening stage. Plus, Danielle now reps St. Laurent Beauty. Blackpink just earned a 20th Guinness World Record because now they surpassed Little Mix to become the most streamed girl group in Spotify's history. Espa are the first K-pop group to ever cover Paper magazine. An Jin now models casual wear brand Lucky Schwet. Lots of Korean artists showed up and wowed the crowds at South by Southwest, including Balming Tiger in particular. K-pop stars also have wowed the world with Milan Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week, Fashion Month Period, Joy for Tods, Hanjun for Balmain, Hanjun from 80s, Taeyeon for Loewe, plus Miyavi, J-Rock icon, rocked a guitar solo during the Adim show in New York. Nam Woo Hyun signed with J-Flex Entertainment. Gravity is gearing up for the first world tour, and you can watch the Seoul opening night, well, the second of two opening nights, May 14th via Beyond Live. Daejun and AG left the girl group hashtag, so the group will now promote as five members. Les Seraphim are the first K-pop group to go double platinum with a Japanese debut single. New Japanese platinum certifications, now as well for Stray Kids The Sound and NCT Dream's Best Friend Ever. New Jeans surpassed a billion Spotify streams March 7th, and Woods surpassed a million monthly listeners. View Count Milestones, Kwan Unbi's Underwater, 10 million. TXT Sugar Rush Ride, 100 million. NCT Dream's Hello Future, 100 million. Ives Love Dive, 200 million. Jesse's New New Nana, 200 million. BTS's Life Goes On, 500 million. 900 million views on Jenny's solo. New Jean song Ditto broke a BTS record they held for Dynamite for song with the most days at number one on the Melon charts. Taeyeon and Baekhyun's Monroe has surpassed 5 million streams on SoundCloud. Jimin broke a record with Set Me Free Part 2. It topped iTunes in 110 regions, faster than any other song has ever topped iTunes in that many places. Other big moments, Onu's album Circle, topping the charts in 30 regions, Kai's Rover in 40, and J-Hope and Jake Cole's On the Street in 80. Last but of course not least, your action item of the day is to please donate to Mom Cares. Lance Reddick's widow, Stephanie, has requested that we honor his memory. Send her condolences by spreading the word about and donating to Mom Cares, a postpartum doula program for underserved mothers, for moms dealing with the NICU. You can go to momcares.org backslash donate. And if there's a specific charity you want to shout out in my shout out of the day segment, you're always welcome to message me on socials about that. Thank you guys so much for sticking it out with me for quite a lengthy recap, and I will talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody!